Thank you for listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. We hope you enjoy our journey through the book of Acts, exploring the many powerful actions of Jesus Christ as he continues to move and teach us through his apostles by his Holy Spirit, empowering the explosion of the church to expand from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, which is you and me right here and right now, where we move from spectators to participants and join with Paul in preaching the gospel with all boldness and without hindrance. Let's now join Pastor Jordan Moody in our new series, Acts, The Movement Begins. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejaffrey.org. So let me uh, jump into Acts chapter 1 now. The movement begins. This is our second message in this series. So if you're just coming with us for the first time or you missed last week, this is the second message in this series. Uh, So hopefully you can find that online. But we're going to read Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Acts chapter 1, verse 12. We'll read to the end of the chapter. And then we'll try to open this up together and understand what God is doing, really how he is setting up. This message is entitled, The Waiting Room. The Waiting Room. And perhaps any of you might find yourself there today in some sort of period of waiting, what that looks like. So let's look at Acts chapter 12. Sorry, chapter 1, verse 12. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. Those are the 11 disciples, now apostles. And it says in verse 14, all of these were with one accord. They were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women And Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of the persons in that upper room must have been a pretty large upper room because there was 120 of them that had gathered together along with the apostles. He said in verse 16, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those arrested who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. That's exciting. Verse 19, that's Judas by the way. And it became known to the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called and in their own language, Akeldama, That is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms. Peter then quotes from the Old Testament. He says, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And he quotes from another chapter in Psalms and says, and let another take his office. So they're praying about seeking to fulfill the office of Judas since Judas has died. Verse 21 So when one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, so he's now giving a list of what he thinks is required of a person who would fulfill this office. Verse 22, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two 
So the people, the group, very much like our church has done with deacons and such and elders at times, they nominate two. So they put forward two. One was called Joseph, called Barsabbas, who's also called Justice. He had three names, intense, okay? And then a little known guy named Matthias, right? So two names were put together, really Joseph and Matthias. Verse 24, and they prayed and said, you Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. And I like to think just like we did in installing, praying, laying on hands, they would have done the same for Matthias. I find it also fascinating that this passage was planned to be preached on this week many weeks ago, and I didn't know we were going to be doing all this at the same time. So I think the Lord is trying to teach us something in that. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to open up your word. Teach us your scripture. Teach us your truth. Your your word is truth, Lord. Sanctify us in this truth. God, we ask that you would open up this to us. As many of us feel at times distracted and busy and overwhelmed with life, would you allow this moment, this period for, for us as a church to come in and to present our hearts before you? Lord, if we need to turn away from something, show us this morning. If we need to turn in greater love and, and um, following you in a greater capacity, Lord, show us that today. God, teach us your truth and show us who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is Acts chapter 1, the waiting room. Uh, This week, or last week as well, I've been listening to a book while I drive. Uh, That's key if you uh, ever need to find how to read books, just go to Audible, start listening to a book. It's, It's like cheating at times, I feel like, right? But I've been listening to a biography on the life of Tim Keller. He recently passed away. He was an influential author, writer, apologist, pastor, um, of a church there in New York City for many years, but also in Pennsylvania and other places. But it's a biography on his life, and I find him a very fascinating person and one I have learned a lot from and uh, one I would love to learn more from as I study some of his writings and such. And it's just very influential, and yet it was the way he went about it. And so the beginning of his life, it talks about his life in university at Bucknell, where he was a very unknown figure, just as another student, and he found the Lord. And he grew in this Christian understanding. He began to read voraciously and begin to encounter the different competing philosophies that were there present in his own university. He encountered atheists and agnostics, but one of the groups that he was encountering was with his own professors there at the university and in the college, was the pervasive philosophy that was very popular during the time of and forgive me, but I believe it's the 50s and 60s during that time period, Uh, it was this philosophy known as absurdism. Um, It's one I've mentioned in the past. It's some kind of form of existentialism, but it was extremely popular. Writers like Albert Camus, Uh, Franz Kafka and Samuel Beckett, perhaps you've heard them, and if you haven't, that's okay. Um, But the idea is that in those colleges and universities at that time, every literature English department was teaching the new writings, especially of, of Kafka, but especially Camus. Albert Camus was an absurdist, as he was called. He was a philosopher, an influential writer. 
Beckett was known for a variety of unique things. He was known for uh, writing a play and a variety of writings that were very strange at that time, absurd in some ways. He wrote a play called An Act Without Words. It was a play, a dramatized play that had no words, okay? And they wrote very strange things. It was something in which in this modern play or theater, uh, the actors mimed certain things. A lot of his writings and his uh, literature it has, seems to almost have no point. Sometimes the actors will interact with something on the stage that has nothing to do with anything else. There's a window that leads to nowhere in the back, a door on the stage that has no opening and doesn't o actually open, and there's a variety of random things, random events, random statements or movements that don't seem to connect and make no sense because that's his very point. In fact, what he's telling you in their writings is life is absurd. There is no meaning. Get over it. <laughs> and so this was the popular philosophy that led to a variety of things that we even are experiencing today. Because the foundation was, led, uh, was founded there in the 50s, 60s and led into a whole host of different things. But we find here a very different opposite kind of place here in Acts. We find a group of people 120 faithful followers of Jesus in the upper room who could have very much so been in despair for their Savior has gone. He has just ascended into heaven, said goodbye, and told them to go to Jerusalem and sit and wait. Now, I know we love waiting, don't we? we, we it's our favorite thing to do. We're all very patient. <laughs> But these faith-filled believers did not lose hope, though it might have seemed, especially in that 10 long days where they could have lost hope, lost faith. But instead, we see them waiting expectant for something to happen. They are waiting with expectant hope. They're waiting in the upper room together and praying together, and we're going to look at that in a moment, but they are waiting to see what God is going to do. Albert Camus and many of these other writers of the absurdists would almost laugh at something like that because the essence of their teaching and meaning and things that we even experience in our own culture today is ultimately that there is no meaning to life, there is no afterlife, there is no higher power. You're in a waiting room by yourself and frankly, why would you ever hope for anything else to come? Just enjoy where you're at right now. Kind of like John Lennon's Imagine song. Imagine there's no heaven it's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. A song and a mantra for a hopeless afterlife. Camus' entire philosophy is based on that same idea. That it's absurd to think that there is an afterlife or a God above. Humans have this drive to find meaning in things where it doesn't even exist. And we'll try to create it on our own. But the universe is cold and indifferent to the quest for meaning. We will always be faced with absurd situations where our attempts to find meaning will eventually fail. That is what these philosophers would tell you. Our lives are meaningless and will remain so. So Camus makes the bold claim in all of his writings in The Plague and The Stranger and a variety of other writings that he wrote that the meaning of life is that there isn't one. And we can't make one either. Yet, the story of Acts that we are jumping headlong into 
finds a group of people that are pushing back and against that pervasive philosophy that existed at that time. Certainly we find ourselves here in today. For they are in a place, in a waiting room. You could say the waiting room of life where they find themselves surrounded with pervasive and ideas and, and doubts perhaps and yet they find themselves expectant that there is a God above. That there is a power outside of ourselves. There is a transcendent and holy loving God. And they are praying, speaking to him asking for him to move in a great and mighty way. And I'm not sure if maybe that's where you find yourself today. You might find yourself in a little bit of a similar place. A place where you are in that waiting room, this upper room. Not exactly sure if you truly believe what it is that you know you're supposed to believe. And yet you find yourself waiting. You're in that doctor's office, not sure if your name's ever going to get called. (laughs) Not even sure if there's a doctor outside of that office, but I'm in the waiting room, and I know he's coming. I know my name will be called, and I believe as a Christian community of people in the 21st century, we find ourselves in a similar place where we're waiting for the Lord to return again. They are waiting for him, the Holy Spirit, to come in Acts chapter 2 and light the fire. We find ourselves in a similar place waiting for his return. And are we waiting with that similar expectant hope and faith that he is coming again and he is alive? And that's what I want to present to you this morning. And so we find themselves at the very beginning here. As we're going to run through these ideas very quickly. This idea of just simply they're waiting obediently. If you look at the first couple of verses, and even in the beginning of chapter one of Acts, he tells them to simply go back and wait in Jerusalem until the power of the Holy Spirit falls upon you. And so really this first point is when you don't actually always know what to do or what is going to happen, our response should be to simply obey what you already know to do. So so often it's like, well, what about this? Or what about that? Or what if I do this? And Sometimes it's not clear. And when it's not clear, all we have to do is simply obey what we know God has already told us to do. So God has clearly laid out a whole host of commands and opportunities to truly obey what it is he's told us to do. And often it's just simply waking up the next morning and doing what we know is right and know to do in his way. Sometimes it's simple things. Well, I don't know about this and about that. Well, it's Sunday. So what should you do? <laughs> you wake up, you go to church. <laughs> well, I don't know what's going to happen next week. Well, okay, well, what should you do right now? Love your family. Follow and repent of wherever you find yourself and draw yourself closer to the Lord. Open up his word. Simply seek to love your neighbor as yourself. These are actions that we can do and follow along with the disciples, the apostles per se here. That they're in the upper room and they don't know exactly how everything's going to work out. But what they do know is they can simply obey what Jesus has already told them to do. They can go back to Jerusalem, they can go to the upper room, and they can wait till God moves. So often it's not about knowing 10 days ahead or 10 years ahead. It's about simply just obeying what God's told you to do today. That makes all the difference, gives you purpose and meaning in life, and grounds you around who the person of Jesus Christ is for you. And yet, what's also beautiful about this is that they don't wait alone. Ever been in a waiting room by yourself? 
Not sure if anybody's around. <laughs> um, or you take some, I've, I've been at a restaurant, right, where they take your order and you're waiting and you are, I always think they, they, I know they forgot me. I've been waiting here way too long, right? And everyone else seems to be getting their food except little old me in the corner with a number and it feels like nobody knows I exist. It's this waiting alone, but here we see them as a church, really the fledgling beginnings of this, what we call church today. And these apostles are gathering. There's the 11 uh, disciples, these now apostles. The disciples are these learners and followers, now moved to apostles, which means sent ones, those who are sent out with a message, a directive on behalf of some other authority, kind of like an ambassador would be. There's now an apostle that's sent out. There's the women there. And that's referenced as a group for in the the period of Jesus in the Gospels, we find that there were varieties of groups of women that were actually supporting the ministry of the apostles all along the way. And they were very influential. It also describes Mary, the mother of Jesus. And in fact, I believe this is the last time we hear her referenced. But she's here at the very beginning right there. Can you imagine all that she's gone through in the last couple of days for not just 40 days ago, she saw her son Jesus on the cross. And then we see Jesus's family, his brothers and sisters likely are there. This sense that before his brothers in particular are referenced in John, I believe it is, but other places where it says that they did not believe in Jesus. They didn't actually Uh, believe that he was the Messiah. Now we have to cut them some slack, right? Can you imagine being a brother to Jesus Christ uh, in his household, right? What that would have been like, okay? It it maybe would have been the easiest. In other words, they were always getting in trouble and Jesus never did anything wrong, right? And so then uh, we see this group grow from this group to be about 120 people. 120 people gathered and it says they're doing something. What do you do in the, uh, if you're in a waiting room? Uh, I'd say back in the olden days, you'd pick up a magazine and look at a magazine. Most of you probably take your phone out, right? And uh, you're looking at your phone, you're killing time, right? Here, what are they doing? Twiddling their thumbs, looking at their phones, looking at magazines, killing time. No, they find themselves in verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves, what? To prayer. And they're voting themselves to prayer. They're all in one accord. It's like the classic Christian joke that's written in my notes, so I have to tell it to you. <laughs> You're like, come on, it's going to be good. When you write jokes into your notes, it's always good. What kind of car did the disciples drive, huh? They were all in one accord. That actually had better response than I expected. One accord, Okay. They drove in accord together, right? They're all in a group. You're not going to forget it now. At least that's why we did that, okay, right? But they are in one accord. They are in harmony. The idea is that they're in unity. They are working together, which is mind-blowing when you consider all that they have been through in 40 days. It doesn't take long in a classroom when the teacher leaves the classroom for the classroom to explode and fracture in a whole variety of sorts of things. Believe me, I was a teacher. Uh, students, I have to leave the room. I'll be back in five minutes. Everybody be quiet and keep working on your stuff. What happens when the teacher leaves the room? Does anybody work on anything? Everyone's arguing about who's in control and what they're going to do and the power of this. That. Yet we find these disciples, these apostles, the women, the ladies, they're all together and they're in one accord. They're in unity. 
It's amazing that the foundation of the church here in Acts 1 and Acts 2 begins in unity, not dissension and disagreement and separation. It's like at the very beginning, in essentials, unity, non-essentials, liberty, and all things charity, as the church has had that mantra for centuries. Right? This obedience to Jesus unifies them. And this is what he prayed for them. John 17, he prayed that they would be one. Jesus prays in his high priestly prayer in John 17. I pray that, Lord, that they may be one as you and I are one, so that others in the world would know that you sent me because of their oneness. So Hope Fellowship Church, that's our desire, that we would be one we would be unified around the person of Jesus and his truth as to who he is. Not unified around our feelings and our emotions or our preferences, but that we would be unified around the truth of Jesus Christ and his gospel message. Because the word says in that same prayer in John 17, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Where do you find the ability to stay unified? We find the ability to stay unified as one around the truth of God, the truth of Jesus Christ. It is that truth that will guide you because the Holy Spirit when he comes, which was also said in John 16, when the Holy Spirit falls upon you, he will be your helper and comforter. And it says in John 16 that he will guide you in the way of all truth. Jesus prays that we are one. How do we do that? He says, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. How do we know the truth? The Holy Spirit will come upon you and he will guide you in the way of all truth. This is how we understand the word, how we find unity together as a group and as a church and press on. So it's this sense that we are waiting in this waiting room obediently. We are waiting together as a body, as a church, as a people, praying each and every day that the Lord would keep us together and expand our borders of influence for the gospel, which he's already done today, which is a praise to God. But they're waiting prayerfully. This is the next point, that ultimately when we don't know what to do, when we don't know where to go, we can simply just do what we know to do today, and then we can pray to the Lord, speak to him, express your concerns and needs, so that he will be able to reveal to you and show to you through the wisdom of his word and through prayer what it is he wants you to do. So in obedience, we seek wisdom and direction through talking to God in prayer, and that's what they did. They pray, all these in one accord, verse 14, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They were going to pray together. I saw this the other day, and it, it was convicting. <laughs> I saw it, I don't remember where, but somebody said, if, if all, not, again, I don't remember where I saw this, but if, if really, it, it was saying, if, if all of your prayers from yesterday were answered, would the world be any different today? <laughs> if, if the only prayers that matter were the prayers you prayed yesterday, would anybody even know? <laughs> would the world be any different? No, but I was busy yesterday. We're all busy. <laughs> Join the club. <laughs> and yet we don't find time to pray. What does Jesus tell us? You ask not. <laughs> You have not because you ask not. Because you don't ask is why you don't have. So much of prayer is just very simple. Just talking with God. It's not these flowery words that maybe perhaps me and the elders sometimes use. Okay, that's okay. But in the simplicity of our own language, we can talk with God. Pray to him. And he will answer your prayers. 
That's the beauty of it, this faith that we have in God. They're waiting obediently. They're waiting together. They're waiting prayerfully. They're waiting faithfully, though, as they pray. What are they doing while they wait? They're also assessing the situation they find themselves in. Judas has just committed suicide uh, about 40 days prior to this. He gave up his right to be considered among the 12, which are referenced as the 12. He gives up this position. And so Peter, through prayer, through studying God's word, clearly because he begins to reference passages from the Old Testament in Psalms, he stands up before the people. And again, we have the beginnings model of a church service. We have people coming together. We have prayer going on. We have a leader, Peter, standing up and addressing the group, preaching a sort of message to them from the Old Testament and moving them to action. Let us take action now. And so right here at the beginning, we have Peter stepping forward on behalf of these apostles to be the mouthpiece for the group. As we would liken it, even in our own church, we describe this as the first among equals, that Peter was equal to the others, but he became that mouthpiece for them. Very similar to myself here at the church, that I often land in that position as a mouthpiece on behalf of this elder team that shepherds you as a church. I am the first among equals, no more important than any of them. And yet God has equipped me and challenged me and given me that responsibility often to speak on their behalf and to speak for the church of this place. And so it's a beautiful thing to consider that right there in the beginning in Acts 1, and particularly in Acts 2, you'll see it even in greater capacity, when the Spirit falls, Peter then delivers this incredible sermon, and 3,000 souls are saved and baptized and all those kinds of things. But we see that, this pattern, prayer, study, together, then a preaching, and then really, as I believe, these apostles have already been sanctified in the Holy Spirit, Leading up to Acts 2, Acts 2, they will receive a filling of the Spirit that in greater capacity than they had before. Because in John chapter 20, Jesus has already spoken with the apostles in the upper room. And it says in John 20 that he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And I imagine if Jesus were to breathe on me the Holy Spirit, I would receive the Holy Spirit. And so they have the Holy Spirit. Peter has this, uh, this sanctifying of the Spirit. Then he will receive it in its fullness and be filled to overflowing in Acts 2 when the Spirit falls. But it's in this, you could say, first meeting of the church. Uh, maybe it's a first church business meeting. You know, we all love business meetings of the church, right? Acts chapter 1 is what we have. And he presents to them a point. Hey, Judas is no longer part of the twelve. And if this 12 are to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, and if we are going to be a complete nation for God to come in and create this new society that is about to move forward, then we need a 12th. And so they select these two men, Joseph and Matthias. And their qualifications were listed. They needed to have been with John the Baptist, baptized by him in the beginning. They need to have traveled with them from that beginning time. They need to have been taught by Jesus and a witness of his resurrection. Barnabas and Matthias both met those qualifications. It's extraordinary to see that work out. And so Matthias, as they cast lots, uh, they, they select Matthias. Now that seems very strange to us, and I won't go into much explanation for it. But in the Old Testament, in a variety of situations, we see in the Old Testament them casting lots in order to discern the will of God. I don't recommend this today, okay? And yet, in Acts, we have a very unique transitional period between the Old and the New. 
And there are many Old Testament practices that are brought in as they are trying to grapple with this newness of the Spirit that leads them into a new way. So in the Old Testament, in fact, priests were established. There was an Urim and a Thummim that was in the breastplate that the high priest would wear. And in many ways, this was a way that they would cast lots to discern the will of God. We looked at this, some of you are astute and you remember, but back when Saul was running, was chasing David, eventually David gets the ephod and the breastplate and he can discern the will of God, but Saul cannot and he has to go to a witch at Endor. It's because of this kind of situation going on in the back. But here, in a sense, it's like they vote or they draw straws, seeking God. What would you have? Lord, we've done our best with these two men. We cannot discern a difference between them. So God, would you make the decision and would you call your man to be this 12th apostle? Matthias then steps into that position and is selected by the church there at the beginning, if you would, and then by the apostles and by God himself. And so this brings up other debates that I'd love to chat with you some other time because many people would, would see the apostle Paul as that 12th disciple and there are some commentators I was reading that don't think, think uh, Matthias was a valid choice. And so it's a fun theological concept and conversation for another time. But it is in, interesting that I find that these 12 are the 12 apostles now with Matthias's name will be in Revelation as that 12th apostle. And then we find also that I believe this second, this 13th apostle, which is the apostle Paul called by God in a unique way to bring this message of the gospel now to the Gentiles. Because what do you have? 12 apostles, 12 tribes. You have this new nation that's present at Acts. Holy Spirit falls upon this Israelite nation, the 12 apostles. They proclaim this truth. Then God calls Paul and says, no, the gospel is not just for the Israelites and those who are coming to me, but it is also for the Gentiles. And Paul says multiple times, I am an apostle to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth, to people like you and me. And so Paul, that 12 plus 1, we now get this end of the earth kind of way of seeing things. That to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And that is what we see as we share also an understanding of that gospel today. And so we wait expectantly though. This is this beautiful idea that I see in Lewis's writing when he says in the Narnia series many times that Aslan is on the move. You ever sense that? You've seen that? It, we're, we find ourselves in this waiting room, might feel like winter is coming or we're already in winter, but we know in that story, Aslan is on the move, meaning change is coming. Something is about to happen. Do you have an expectant hope that as you wait obediently, waiting together, as you wait prayerfully, as you wait faithfully, we are also waiting expectantly because we don't follow the philosophy of Albert Camus. We don't follow Samuel Beckett because they are dead. <laughs> and Jesus is alive. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that if our hope is simply in the fact that Jesus is dead and has not risen from the dead, then we are a people most to be pitied. But because in fact Jesus has risen from the dead, we have hope for eternal life. So we might find ourselves in this waiting room, but we are expectant, knowing that there is a power above. There is a God here now, the Holy Spirit living within us, and there is this expectation that he will move, and he is working now even within us, and he is preparing us for a work that he will do until he returns. You can bank on it. You can bet on it. 
You can lay your entire life on it. It is sure. It is our faith. And so as we close, I want us to be in that space, in that waiting room as we prepare, yes, for next week, but also what God might just be doing in your life today. Because have you ever come to, last night, or no, two nights ago, we were starting a fire in our um, little fire pit outside, and the girls are always wanting to start fires because they want to do marshmallows and all that, and then it's all messy and sticky, and it's the worst. But we love it, so you do all that stuff, right? But how do you start a fire? Well, most of the time, I just take lighter fluid and put it in there and just boom, things going. But this time, I wanted to be all natural. So I, I prepared the sticks and I got the things and I sent my children off into the woods to gather dry wood because we're very, you know, yeah. So we brought it all back. We're building this fire and trying to keep the fire in there together. And then what ultimately do you do? Eventually, once it's all set and prepared, you have to light the fire. <laughs> And you get down there, and it is a better illustration if you use lighter fluid. So God puts the lighter fluid on there, right? And then what does he do? He takes that match, and then, boom, it lights. There's a roaring fire. That is what is going to happen in in this next chapter. Acts chapter 2 is an extraordinary foundational chapter in the beginning of the church and even in our church life today. Because we still share in this spirit that has fallen there in Acts chapter 2. But ultimately what we have is we have 12 logs in the fire now with Matthias. We have this kindling that's being prepared. Then in 10 days at Pentecost, we will have the spirit, the spark, and it will light the fire. And there will be flames burning from then till now. And then I know they will continue to burn in the kingdom that will expand to the ends of the earth. Because they will receive power when the Holy Spirit falls upon them. They will go from Jerusalem, which is our Jaffrey, and Monadnock region, to Judea and Samaria, which is North and South America, and to the ends of the earth, which is Africa and beyond. (laughs) And that message is there here in Acts 1 and 2. It is there with that fledgling church, and it is now here in Jaffrey, in this fledgling church, because ultimately we are the end of the earth. And yet we're called to reach our end of the earth with the same message of the gospel. That Jesus Christ has died for you and me for our sins. He has risen and he is alive and he is coming again. This is a message that changes lives. It is a message that we can be expectant on. An expectant hope. That we find ourselves in a waiting room. We can have faith in a God that will move and is moving right now. And it is a God that never changes. There's nobody like him. He is God above. He was the same then and same now. And he continues to move in miraculous ways. And that's what I'm hoping for so many of you here today. That we would be expectant. That we would pray. And that we would obey his word. And seek to continue that mission all across the globe. Let's close in prayer. Father, we come before you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your message. We ask, God, that you would work and that you would move and that you would change, Lord. And yet, as you tell us often to simply wait, perhaps we find ourselves in the valley of the shadow of death. Lord, help us not to fear any evil, for you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they will comfort us. And ultimately, Lord, we know that your mercy and goodness will follow us all the days of our lives. And no matter what may happen, we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And God, we know that nothing can separate us from that love, not height or death, not life or death, nothing. 
Angels, powers, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And we thank you, God, that your love is the same, that you are the same, that we can come to you, sing your praises. Praise you, God, for the life that you've given us in this church here today. Continue to grow us, challenge us, make us new. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.